Sheryl Sandberg came out publicly after saying, um, there's little evidence to suggest that organizing was happening on Facebook. Um, and she cited, quote, more extreme sites. Um, the same uh, <laughs> DOJ documents show only eight people um, said they used or interacted with Parler, which is the sort of far right site that they're trying to scapegoat now. Um, it's pretty crazy. You see like the response to Parler, right? Amazon shuts down their servers. Apple removes it from the app store. Facebook sitting right in front of us and is in this context, 10, 11, 12 times more culpable and zero action. Lovely. So welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today, we are talking with Kyle Taylor, the founder and CEO of Fairvote UK, who were actually part of the campaign that helped expose Cambridge Analytica's data um, scandal. Uh, so welcome to the show, Kyle. Thanks very much for having me. No problem. So uh, we are recording like a week or two in advance, but when uh, this is posted, my book will have just been released, which is called Brexit, the Establishment Civil War. And it's all about how social media can be manipulated in uh, to basically screw with elections. So it's very topical that we're going to talk yeah, about well, that today. Brexit was the first big um, test to see what could be done and what worked. <laughs> well, I could not agree more. It's a, it's a, it's honestly terrifying that we have got five years now, basically, since the camp, the Brexit campaign, like began in in earnest, like when they really started, like the the, the campaign um, wheels in motion, and we have done to date, to date, nothing, nothing about this. <laughs> Yeah, not a single law has been passed in the UK. Um, the only thing that's been done is Scotland has has sort of brought in digital imprints ahead of uh, May's election, which they tested in their independence, the last independence referendum. But otherwise, no significant legislation has been passed at all. Oh, what is um, the what is the digital what's a what's the digital imprint do? Um, so the digital imprint is uh, it's it's go, it will be introduced in UK legislation um, by the next election. But the idea is that um, any content that is on social media has to have an embedded imprint. So, you know, similar to any leaflet um, in a UK election that says um, who paid for it, who's promoted it. The But even in the context of Scotland, there's a huge um hole in it because if there's video content without text then there is no requirement for an imprint it, all it has to do is be in the bio of the actual account which as people know uh, me, makes them completely useless because if as soon as the video is taken extracted and shared behind encryption it can be spread infinitely um with no record and uh, no accountability <laughs> that's kind of terrifying isn't it it's just it's just sort of surreal because um, it you know it, it it's this 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 bizarre space where people can't seem to ascribe um, things relate things that happen in the offline world with things that happen in the online world. For example, we wouldn't sit here at, at all be, and debate if a leaflet put through letterbox should still have an imprint on it, and yet we can't wrap our heads around the idea that online content is just is even more pernicious as a result of its infinite ability to be shared. Um, so it's just bizarre, and it, you know it, it's unfortunate. But the um, attempted coup in the U.S. seems to be the first time that legislators are clocking the um, implications of this stuff, despite the warnings from organizations like us, people like you for you know half a decade. Um, and it's likely because it was the first time that um, they they saw in a democratic Western context, their own lives at risk as a result of this. Yeah, I guess it was the first time that they, they, they kind of saw like a, a real world impact from from just discussions happening online. I mean, like the the people have pointed to the 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 Black Lives Matter protests as well in in America that kind of went went a bit violent. Um and then but that didn't like directly affect the the, the government or White you know people. yeah it, it's just like <laughs> it wasn't like quite literally banging on their front door. Um, <laughs> yeah, and that's that's you know that's wrapped up in like 
issues with white privilege and, you know, the ruling class having no real connection oftentimes to actual people. Um, and, you know, you, it's interesting you bring up um, BLM because um, it was after Kenosha um, when several people were murdered um, and who and the armed militias had organized on Facebook that Mark Zuckerberg ca called it an, a, quote, operational mistake. Uh, well, I mean, it, it is is some sort of admission of 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 guilt, maybe like a, a move forward. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's um, for Facebook in particular. Well, for most of the tech companies, the their focus is entirely on avoiding any serious antitrust legislation in the U.S. And pretty much all of their actions can be traced directly to will this affect our ability to lobby on the Hill? Um, the Justice Department, as well, in the U.S., just released the. Um, the initial investigations into the uh, Capitol Hill um, attempted coup, um, and of the 233 rioters, um, just shy of 100 said that they had organized, found out about, or connected with the movement on Facebook or Instagram, Facebook's prod products. And that, of course, Sheryl Sandberg came out publicly after saying, um, there's little evidence to suggest that organizing was happening on Facebook. Um, and she cited, quote, more extreme sites. Um, the same uh, <laughs> DOJ documents show only eight people um, said they used or interacted with Parler, which is the sort of far right site that they're trying to scapegoat now. Um, it's pretty crazy. You see like the response to Parler, right? Amazon shuts down their servers. Apple removes it from the App Store. Facebook sitting right in front of us and is in this context, 10, 11, 12 times more culpable and zero action. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty shocking. I mean, I guess that depends on the the size of your marketing or your, your lobbying budget. Exactly. <laughs> So uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about who Fairvote UK are and, and like why you decided to set up the organization? Yeah, so um, I set up Fairvote UK um, in the to, to build a campaign around the revelations that Chris Wiley um, were, were, was planning to make around Cambridge Analytica and Shamir Sani was planning to make around um, Vote Leave and Be Leave and um, how they committed the greatest um, election law violation in British history and nothing happened. Um, the I, I, I knew Chris for years and years. Um, we had worked together in a political party in the UK um, in 2012-2013. We'd sort of lost touch. He moved back to Canada for a while. Um, I was working on different projects and then he sort of approached me uh, in at a house party of a mutual friend and said, we need to talk. Um, and we went upstairs and he just sort of told me everything. <laughs> um, okay, thought, that, that oh must God, have been pretty heavy, is, man. This is serious. Yeah, yeah. Uh, particularly around Cambridge Analytica, the number of, of the amount of data that they had taken without people's consent um, on Facebook with with Facebook's you know, knowledge <laughs> and permission, really. Um, largely with their with their knowledge and um i mean tacitly but with their permission mm. i mean something that shocked me um when i was doing a lot of research for the for for that part of the of my book when, we were, when i was talking about um about like uh, agri iq and cambridge analytica's um sort of data violations and, and well theft really um there was the amount of times that that like facebook just sort of emailed them and were like can you check this and all they had to do was reply and be like yeah it's sorted <laughs> yeah and like no no like follow-up no investigation no like responsibility for the amount of data that had been had been like illegally obtained they just were you know they, they paid for enough ads probably and they were just like well we've got the money now it doesn't matter yeah well and, and that's what happens when there's no independent democratically accountable oversight right i mean imagine if after the um the oil rig in the gulf of mexico um the halliburton rig that um, can't remember the name of it, um, that ha ruptured and filled the Gulf of Mexico with, um, with oil. Imagine if we, uh, we were fine with Halbert and being like, yeah, we cleaned it up. We swear we cleaned it up. <laughs> I mean, you just, it was unimaginable. Right. And, and so it's, it's crazy. I mean, even yesterday, Facebook said again, oh, we're, we're going to, we're really going to seriously stamp, stamp out COVID vaccine disinformation and vaccine disinformation more broadly. And it's like, well, you've said this several times before, and there's no process by which anyone confirms whether you've done that. <laughs> You're supposed to take you at your word. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's uh, the, the, the lack of oversight is, is, is crazy. But like the, the, the conversation that I've been having with a lot of people at the minute is, is like, uh, is, is this weird thing where they're just like, oh, they're a private company. They can do what they want. And then, then, the, but at the same time, they're really concerned of the power of, of, of kind of like how it's disrupting, like not just like politics and, and democracy, but like our, our entire like, societal and cultural fabric like the amount of influence they have in in steering like uh, our entire like world almost now and that like, people are 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 both conflicted about like how much power they have and and how to go about like trying to regulate it but it's like how how do you, how do you even propose that we would like start to do this like where would you start yeah well i mean i think the you hit the nail on the head with the, the broader issue. What we've effectively, you know, there, there's this idea of like the public sphere in democratic societies, you know, and we all come together and we learn about stuff from the news and we hold our leaders to account and we there's free speech, free expression, all these exchanges that happen. There's always been issues with power and access and racism and sexism in these spaces. Um, but in the digital public sphere, which is where a majority of conversations now happen, um, and in the context of COVID and lockdowns, where almost all serious conversations happen, we've allowed it, this to be completely privatized and controlled by one company. Um, and I, I think that um, when you think about it in the context of a country, like you think about it as a country, you know, Facebook is basically a dictatorship. Mark Zuckerberg owns just shy of 58%. He has absolute power. and in talking about, you know, regulatory reform and oversight, I think the case of Donald Trump is is the perfect one. So it's a, you know, Twitter banned him, Facebook te- temporarily, indefinitely banned him. I mean, the, their their use of, of PR uh, language and spin is just fantastical. Um, I didn't know an indefinite ban could be temporary. Um, They've knocked it to their oversight board. And, and of course, you know, the case of Donald Trump is a very straightforward one. It's pretty obvious that he's violated their community standards. But the broader question is, why are we okay with private companies making these types of decisions around speech? And I think that the baseline approach with regulation needs to start with accepting that these companies are for-profit businesses. They're effectively advertising businesses and their goal is to maximize profit. And that's okay. But if we can't accept that that's the reality, then we're not going to be able to actually address address the problems. I think the, the big um, question is this is not how you deal with antitrust issues, because it seems that that's, that's much more straightforward in the traditional way in which the United States in particular has dealt with um, corporate power, but more around the misinformation, disinformation ecosystems and the uh, incentives that 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 sit behind them. So I'm talking about algorithmic editorialization of content that is, is incentivized to drive people into more extreme positions. Um, in the UK, you know, they're talking about a sort of one size fits all online regulator through the online harms bill. But I think we also need to accept that all of these business models are different and their core product is different. And they're effectively public utilities at this point. And and actually, we're probably better off with a more monopolistic um, uh, model for the actual product because the network effect requires it to be useful. So instead, why aren't we looking at them and saying, okay, you're a public utility, you are digital communities and digital speech, we're going to regulate you like a public utility. You know, we like we would regulate the water company, the electric, electric company. Um, I think the reason we're struggling is because it's happened so quickly. Their position in society was, you know, sort of interesting 15 years ago, um, novel 15 years ago, um, uh, intriguing 10 years ago, and is now all but essential. So getting banned from Facebook, yeah, like, okay, Donald Trump, but there's a lot of ordinary people who get banned from Facebook for uh, against a system that is not clear, that have no recourse, and they're immediately socially excluded in the digital space. I mean, that is a huge impact on someone's life. We talk about mental health, all these contributing factors. So um, for me, regulation starts with accepting the reality of their business model and objectives and acknowledging that it isn't aligned with societal interests and then approaching them as public utilities in a a model that, that focuses on the companies themselves as opposed to the industry as a whole. You talked about um, people having a right to like recourse if they get if they get banned, and I remember watching an interview with Jack Dorsey from from Twitter, and uh, they, he was getting pushed pretty hard on on people who who've been banned having no way back 
because I, like it's 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 this really weird thing that's that's come in in our society in the last like I don't know five ten years where things that you say like label you for life like people don't have the right to like change their mind on things and and say look I was wrong that's not the right way I should have said it I've changed my mind on this and and like come back from something when for like in in years gone by you could have said something that would have the perhaps the BBC would have said yeah we're not going to have you on our our programs anymore or the 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 times would have said yeah you know you're not going to get a column with us anymore because of what you've said and then someone you like say a few like maybe a few months a few years could go by and then you could go, go back to them and say hey look I've changed my thoughts on this. Here's my like new perspective. I'm and and you, you would have a chance to get to get back into into like the circles of of being able to to publicize your your message essentially, or say you got banned from like a community center for like saying something that was I don't know out of order in, in whatever way. You would you would still have the recourse to go back to like the council of the or, or whatever and say yeah look I'm sorry can you can you like reconsider i've changed my mind or 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 so on like how how would you propose we we like f- almost force a company to accept that they have to have like a review or a, like a review process and should we allow them to set their rules for for like for that and their their own processes or do you think that's something that we should legislate for well, I think so. I think the first thing we have to do is say: is is having access to digital speech now a basic human right? Right? Is is that the baseline where we now sit? Um, and if we accept that yes, then then that means there has to be a fair, open, transparent, and democratically accountable judicial system to assess someone's rights to access this speech, right? And I think it's, it's interesting you're talking about the, you know, can you, can, nobody can ever be forgiven for something they've done. Um, I think there's th- there's this absolutist frame that's been put on this as well. And somehow like um, there's comparisons made of, of, of someone having a, an opinion 10 years ago that, you know, they've rightfully learned more information and changed their mind and evolved, great as opposed to someone who has committed sort of a, you know, unforgivable offense, sexual assault, um, you know, rampant transphobia, racism, et cetera. And there, there's this, the, it always ends up in this place of like the free speech argument. Oh, we're censoring. And what I find, and, and I, it was really a factor of, of two things of social media once again, right? So over the course of a decade, we've all been driven into silos and this has led us to a place where we very we struggle to handle any type of adversity to our point point of view. So we can't even entertain a debate about an opposing point of view. Now, of course, you know, is a point of view um, uh, legitimate? Well, it, you know, it depends. Like the, the the core thing here is the idea, like the complete loss of common sense around this. The, the idea that we cannot see that Donald Trump inciting. An insurrection is different than Black Lives Matter protesting for equal rights and justice is is something that's entirely new. And these these it, it, and it's it's a factor of this this failure to ever be socialized into the idea of adversity. And and so all we want is exactly what we want. And from the tech company's perspective, all they want is for you to have exactly what you want because you'll stay on longer. And the longer you stay on, the more ads they can deliver you. That's a really interesting perspective. Actually, I hadn't really considered that the reason that they were happy to ban certain people was to keep the majority happy. That is, yeah. Well, their their revenue streams happy. I mean, the, the look at the convenience of banning. Look at their convenience of banning Donald Trump. Donald Trump did the exact same thing over the summer with Black Lives Matter protests. Um, and around liberate Michigan, liberate um, he, in three states, he was tweeting liberate this day. That I mean, telling the Proud Boys to you know stand back and stand by um, Charlottesville in 2017, where he said there were good people on both sides. Like his actions are not new. What's new is that he was no longer going to be president in two weeks, so it doesn't matter if he's still allowed on the platform. Yeah. And that's privileged speech, you know, that, that, that's privileging one person's speech over another. Once again, we're saying, OK, because he's the president, he has more latitude with what he's allowed to say. It's insane. Mm. I mean, I think 
like for me the issue becomes like if 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 like uh, for me i think the issue is like the they have like their standards and rules and they like as you mentioned they don't apply them equally but like for for like things that the the like there's still murderous dictators on twitter but trump can't have a and twitter facebook. account and facebook but trump can't have yeah. a twitter account that really like that, that that there's something there to be to be talked about as well for me that you just like if it's like okay like if we're going to accept that these co- these companies have their like set guidelines like I, i'd love to see them like actually apply them and explain how they're applying them rather like especially one of the ones that gets me is youtube as well because they'll just like demonetize or ban videos and not explain why with with like, yeah. like with with no explanation and this it's that lack of 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 like recourse as transparency as, and transparency as you mentioned earlier that really concerns me well, and, and Twitter, so, um, you know, Twitter published after the banning of Trump an actual points system. So if you do this once, then this happens. You do it twice, which is the first time we've seen anything like that, transparently, right? Mm. And the question of sort of how do you regulate that? Well, you know, there there are lots of different models, but one is to say, okay, there is a auditor of regulators. So you pass legislation and you say, okay, tech companies who... Uh, social media companies, uh, I mean, advertising, digital advertising companies, let's just call them what they are. Um, You have to have a hate speech policy. You have to have a um, tiered system for for banning and removal. You have to guarantee appeals, right? And set, set standards as opposed to set the criteria. And then the auditor of regulators then says, okay, uh, in 12 months, I'll be by to check that your regulator is actually enforcing all these things that we've required you to have. And if they're not, you won't be compliant and we will take you to task. And that allows the flexibility of a company building a regulator also that will keep pace with their change. <clears throat> so, I mean, the issue, right, as well with with sort of broad brush regulation is in 12 months, the tech changes entirely and everything you've just regulated for is no longer relevant. But if you have forced the company to co-regulate with the state, then they're also forced to, to keep their regulator up to pace with what they're doing. And they have to fund it themselves, which is literally the least they could do. <laughs> you know, I mean, the bare minimum would be them paying for the co-regulation and oversight that they require. Where do you think, because um, something I've, I've heard like some people discussing is that like we should be dealing with these bans through, through lawsuits. So say if you consider like Facebook or Twitter to be the, the and it is especially now um, given, given the whole uh, lockdown situation, like the, the digital town square and that anything that you could say in a town square should be allowed online. Like do 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 and then if if something is 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 considered like incitement of violence as or or the equivalent of like say uh, shouting fire in a crowded theater, and uh, where where we like people people have made the argument that there is like already like legal precedent for what speech is allowed and that we should be applying that to like companies online. Um, like how do you how do you balance that with then attempting to not let people just tell lies? <laughs> Mm. Well, it, you know, and so the, there's, I think, two aspects. So the first is sort of the overarching principle, right? Like people have freedom of speech, but they don't have freedom of reach, right? You have the right to, in the town square, tell a lie. But do you have the right to infect that lie with into hundreds of millions of people where we see a situation where half of the population of the United States and 60% of the population of France doesn't want to get vaccinated in the con- in, in the global pandemic. And a lot of them say, I've learned about this on social media. So there's that freedom of speech versus freedom of reach piece. The second, I think it's interesting, um, the the idea of you know what what you can say offline versus online, because the threshold online is much, much lower, or excuse me, much, much, much higher to actually get into trouble. Right. I mean, I mean, I think about when we launched because we launched with information relating to Brexit. Again, this is one of those absolutist things. Right. Mm. If you voted remain, then anything you said or did was directly related to the fact that you voted remain. And it was all this side agenda. There couldn't be any validity to it because you voted remain and therefore your opinions no longer matter. After we launched with publishing evidence and my, mind you, vote leave was found 
guilty by the Electoral Commission of breaking electoral law. So it wasn't as if we were pursuing something that wasn't true. I got the most graphic death threats. I mean, how someone was going to hang me, what they were going to do to each limb after they hung me. If somebody said that to me in the street, (laughs) that would be immediate action, right? I would have recourse in the justice system that's been established over hundreds, if not thousands of years in the form of case law and so forth. Online, it's like, oh, is it a credible threat? Like, what? So we're socializing people to the idea that it's like totally acceptable online to say things that you would never say, or for that matter, do offline. And that's so, and that's the, the question about these benchmarks again, like why are we not applying our normal uh, benchmark systems that we, we know online? Why are we treating it like such a different space when the implications are often offline harm? Um, but I think the, the other piece around the, you know, the legal system you were sort of saying, the, the issue is the scale, right? I mean, and the power. Like, and so if you look at Facebook, they created their own oversight board themselves, which is in no way independent. But it also, the big difference from something that would be democratically accountable is you're not guaranteed an appeal, right? So they've p- taken up uh, six, seven, eight, eight or nine cases total so far since they started in, in November that they're considering. Uh, over 150,000 people have brought an appeal to them. So and they're many. hearing nine. So, whereas in, in the real world, if you went to an ombudsman, an industry ombudsman in, in, in this country, and you said, um, you know, the water company did this to me. If you have a, the, the, the ombudsman doesn't go, we're not going to take this one up. If you have a legitimate grievance, they are duty bound to you as a citizen of this country to consider your appeal. So the, the power balance is just off. No single person could take on Facebook in the courts. They drown you in legal fees. You'd be done. And it'd be seven years from now. And the harm will have been done. Mm. I mean, there's one guy who is who is like fearlessly going for it. Um, his name is Maximilian Trems. Uh, he's an Austrian dude, actually. And he uh, he's been like co- like challenging Facebook on, on data privacy stuff for about six or seven years now um and he is very slowly getting somewhere um but he's like it's a it's a it's a crusade like that, that he's he, he's willing to to just throw everything at it and and like fair play to him i mean there's a there's a there's a short section on him in my book just because i thought it was such a like a noble thing that he's like it it takes it takes yeah. a serious it takes a seriously stubborn guy to go you know what they're worth what 800 billion i'll beat them like <laughs> yeah and if you've got the means absolutely mm-hmm. you know but yeah. the day-to-day harms of 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 particularly marginalized and vulnerable communities they're not in a situation where they can ingrain you know get themselves into a lawsuit that goes on this long and the hope is that cases like um, is it Maximilian? Maximilian Schrems, yeah. Like Maximilians will create case law or a, a basis by which people can bring claims in other places, right? And say, actually, no, this isn't isn't acceptable. Um, and I, but I, I, it's the it's the scale. I mean, this and 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 part of this go is the other reason why society as a whole is struggling to comprehend the harm because. The amount of information, the amount of people isn't something that, we, you know, it's the large numbers theory, right? Like you get to a point where, like, why, why is our world becoming so okay with the idea of billionaires? Well, it's because nobody can conceive of the idea of a billion dollars yeah. or a billion pounds. So it's sort of like, that's not real. And, yeah. you know, Facebook, um, I dialed into their last quarterly earnings call because I wanted to hear about how they were next going to try and monetize our way of life. And uh, it was interesting because they were talking about um, how they want to mimic offline communities uh, in a virtual space to create new monetization pathways. And the example Mark Zuckerberg gave, gave was his um, his synagogue and how he wants to like bring it all online and then I guess create monetization pathways, right? But, but the other big theme of their earnings call is um, a- a- everything around, oh, uh, oh, I completely lost my train of thought. <laughs> Monetization pathways. Maximilian lawsuits. Oh, 
completely forgot. Leave it's it. Right. I'll, I'll, I'll edit it. I went on a tangent and then. Yeah. It's all right. It happens to me like literally almost every single podcast I do. I, I'll, I'll start I something so, and I'll forget where I'm going with it. I get so hyped up and then I'm just like, it's so irritated. And then I think, yeah. oh, oops. Hmm. Yeah. So like one of the things I've been um, considering and, and it's something that like actually speaks quite a lot to your, your, your sort of point about um, speech versus reach is uh, like towards the end of my book, I, I kind of suggest that we should, we should probably ban political advertising online. Um, and it seems, that seems super like extreme, maybe, I don't know, maybe you think that's a good idea. And either potentially in like the Perda period in the lead up to elections or just altogether. Cause like, like when, when I think about like, we had like 50 years ago or 60 years ago, the, the television was invented, right? And then after a little while we decided that we were just not going to allow political advertising on television in the UK because we felt that you shouldn't be able to um, sit behind or sit in front of a TV camera and campaign from there. It shouldn't be as easy as paying for adverts. That the politics belonged on the doorstep. And now we have, like in the case of of um, Vote Leave, we had Dominic Cummings and his little team of physicists. Um, from Aggregate IQ working very hard and spending like ha- over half their budget on like digital advertising where to the point where they can like, they can just sit behind their laptop and campaign from there. And it, 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 it just, I don't understand why, why we, we allow it because like, if you, if we believe that, that like it's, it's dangerous, which the, the, the DCMS committee report has that, that, like chaired by a Tory, like it's not just like, like labor, like whinging about it has suggested that this is really dangerous, especially when you've got dark ads, um, things that people can't see where you have the ability to micro target it to, to like the perfect, like wording that you can learn, like from through A-B testing, like the perfect, like wording and graphic and colors and, and like different, like uses of, 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 of like every single possible iteration uh, that you can imagine of an advert and test it and figure out the most like emotional, engaging way of putting it to like get anyone to, to, to click on it. And, and the fact that they can do that and we have no desire to ban it when we think that on TV it's too much is insane mm. to me. Like, do, do, do you think that's this crazy to suggest that we should just ban the political, political advertising or, or, yeah. Well, I think in the in in the current operating model and context i agree i th- but but i think that we our goal should be to change the context and, and so what our report called for after taking extensive evidence was that um there should be a a temporary ban until um actual rules are in place um particularly around transparency um and and also like the so the transparency piece is about like who's sent me this and why, right? Um, which is just in no way is anything about political advertising on online um, transparent. The, the second is, is it true or not? And this is where we just get ultimately hung up again, because for some reason, again, we, we, we've lost the ability to, to believe in the idea of objective truth, right? So if you look at some of those vote leave ads, I mean, you know, Syria borders Turkey. Turkey is going to enter the EU soon. None of like, yes, Syria geographically borders Turkey. Mm. Turkey is not imminently entering the EU. Turkey's going to enter the EU and then a hundred million Turkish people are all going to move to the UK. Like what? I mean, so if we can't agree that, you know, you should be delivering truth, then maybe you shouldn't be allowed to deliver anything. Mm. The the third factor is who is classified as a political advertiser, right? So Facebook's making this decision. For example, the Electoral Commission, the the election regulator in the UK is classified as a political advertiser. They're not a political advertiser. They're trying to get people to vote and tell them how. There's nothing political about that. But suddenly, even how to vote is politicized. So, and then the, the last piece of course is targeting as you, as you mentioned. So we said that you should, political advertising should, the only thing you should be able to use is someone's postcode. And that's simply because your postcode is associated to, with who and what you're voting for. But other than that, you don't know any, anything else about people on the doorstep, right? You know where they live. Um, and maybe through canvassing, you've learned, you've learned more. Um, but, but I think that 
especially in the COVID context, there is a a worry around um, stifling actually um, political conversations because people can't be on the doorstep. Um, and then the other half of that is, you know, it, it is the, the first time that smaller parties can actually really compete. Um, and I think that's that's important because, again, what we see on social media is exactly the same thing we've always seen in, in real life. Anything that starts democratized to so look at radio, um, TV to to a lesser degree, but but still more than it is now, they all end up being consolidated to a few powerful actors both in terms of companies and reach. And so in terms of reach, um, we're working on some research now that's looking at the actual, like uh, the idea that actually disinformation on social media isn't a widespread problem. It's actually a very focused problem with a few hundred actors only, all significant um, media or offline media organizations or political figures. And you see the, the proof in the pudding, right? I mean, they banned Trump from Twitter. Election disinformation dropped 78% the week that followed. Mm. So, you know, not all harm is created equal. Mm. Um, I mean, that's probably I also because the, the election was done. Like, I mean, he like, as soon as they removed him, like Biden had been been like he'd been sworn in, right? Or he was on the verge no. of sworn in? No, am I, am no I, it was I still two weeks away. There. Two weeks away, okay. Two, yeah. Yeah, from the ban to, and then I was just going to say, I think the middle ground is to treat it like TV and consider something like party political broadcasts, mm -hmm. right? So every party gets one thing for yeah. Facebook, for example. Um, and, you know, it's fact-checked. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would be, that would be excellent. I mean, there's, there is, there is the, 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 the one thing I do get concerned about um, is like who, who becomes the arbiter of that, that objective truth. Because like a point that um, Brett Weinstein made to me um, or uh, like a while ago when I did, like when I really started this podcast, he said that like the problem with trying to define truth is that often there's like things that, that aren't quite true, but have like a kernel of, of truth in them that, that, that then you can't say it's all untrue, but you can't say it's all true. And that like trying to draw that line is, is, it's is is all but impossible it's like it's like trying to it's like trying to mark uh, like a sharpie on the sea <laughs> mm. um and and for me the the yeah that 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 becomes my concern about it like uh, as much as i don't like in the private companies being the arbiter like i'm i'm not so sure i'm comfortable with government either <laughs> yeah and 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 that's the 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 underlying issue is who gets to decide. Now, the, the bigger question for me is, is how we've ended up in this debate suddenly now. Because I, you know, even if you look at, um, if you look at like debate videos from the 80s in, in the US, before there were leader, leader debates in the UK, you see that like, you see Ronald Reagan and the Democratic candidate arguing over immigration policy, but no one is arguing over the question of immigration, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Or, and so, and again, this is the convergence of so many things. You know, it's the convergence of social media that's siloing people into information. It's the conflation of feelings and facts. How, how often now do we see people saying like, I feel like that's not true. Like your feeling about a fact is irrelevant mm -hmm. to, the, to the fact. And it's the it's that affirmation environment that is incentivized by advertising that that doesn't ever want to make someone feel wrong because God forbid you feel wrong. And what's happening on the side of that is there's these huge structural shifts happening in society, particularly around labor and work. And it's the perfect storm for a fascist. Right. Because what a fascist often offers is a simple solution to a really complex problem. And that's where, and, and when you're the person being harmed, so let's talk about, you know, automation in the context of work. What do you want to believe? That there are huge structural shifts and we're driving into automation. So the whole nature of work is going to change or this immigrant took your job. <laughs> you know, one's way easier to accept as true and you can point to the, the, the problem. Um, and and it's the same with with climate change and all of these these huge issues. You know, it's a simple it's a it's a wish that they weren't true, and that to me is is that's the the much more frightening piece, um, because authoritarianism, fascism, populism thrives on chaos, 
And all these structural changes are doing is creating more chaos. So it's a self-fulfilling loop for their message. Mm. See, what did I tell you? It's getting more crazy. You need me to be a strong leader. <laughs> See, what did I tell you? Look at the farm protests in, in India, right? I mean, the, the, the ag over the agriculture reform, it's, it's fulfilling the prophecy that Modi laid out by saying, um, you know, we're going to have chaos if, and then there's chaos. And he says, see, I told you, mm. and consolidates more power. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you, you've 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 pointed out a, like you've you've really honed in on it there, and it's it's about, um, and this is again something else I address in my book is like like uh, siloing us as you as you put it into into different like into our little filter bubbles and echo chambers where we just sort of see and hear exactly what we want to hear has again as you pointed out like desensitized us to to understanding that there's another side. So, for example, like in the Brexit debate, there was like. There was, a, in my opinion, there was an utter failure for the last like twenty to thirty years to to address two things: to address um, the fact that people were, some people were uncomfortable with the levels of immigration, especially when it got to around sort of two thousand five and beyond, when we had um, like, admittedly, a lot of people like coming from from Eastern Europe and and different parts of the world to to Britain, and and like that's like it's. It's a legitimate, like, if, if you think that there's, like, a level of immigration that's too much, like, you can debate over whether, like, how much you think is too much. But, like, any anyone that, like, mentioned it was called, was immediately branded as a racist. And then on the complete other side of it, there was another failure to address the fact that, like, the, the reason for, like, the, the loss of jobs um, in, in manufacturing industries um, the, the was, was the, the, the expansion of, like, free market neoliberalism with that and and austerity as well from from 2008 onwards that 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 just was was decimating communities around around britain and these people were 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 looking for something to blame uh, and 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 it's very easy like to 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 put, put up a bunch of of um of adverts on on social media where where it's like yeah it's the immigrants they're stealing all the all the all the public service spots and they're they're like making our, our public services you know not as good when it was probably the privatization of of all the public services and and it it it, it like destroys our ability to have like a reasonable and like actually informed conversation about like what's causing like your grievances and 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 it 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 means that people can just be like immediately written off from either side of the debate as as Ramoners or or racist Brexiteers or and and it's it's like very slowly just destroying our ability to 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 talk to each other, unfortunately. Yeah, well, and 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 it, it's also masking the actual failure, which is in leadership and government, right? So mm -hmm. so. You know, immigration is the the perfect example because I, I I I'm not sure if you've seen the recent YouGov stuff on even pre-pandemic on what matters to um, UK citizens. Immigration doesn't even make top seven. It's number eight now. Why? Because people stopped having the conversation about it because they got what they wanted by scapegoating. Right now, what I mean by a failure of government is that immigrants are a net contributor to the public purse. They contribute more than they take from the state. I mm. believe um, at point of Brexit, it was around five billion pounds a year more that they contributed than they mm. took from the state. They actually on average ask, contribute more than the average British citizen. Yeah, and it's the same in the U in the U.S. as well, um, particularly uh, illegal immigrants because they're often paying taxes using um, a non-genuine social security number, and they're mm. so fearful of taking any deductions, they end up overpaying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. But when you actually ask a person, well, what, what about immigration? Well, hospitals, schools, housing, and jobs. None of those actually have to do with immigration. They have to do with a failure of the state to meet the needs in health, housing, education, and work, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? And, and all of those link to work, really, right? And especially education. And so, but it's much easier for a government, regardless of party. I mean, I wouldn't say that the Labour Party in the um, 2000s was like rampantly, rampantly pro-immigrant either, right? Everyone was, mm. every politician's looking for a scapegoat mm. um, rather than just take responsibility. But even when there were attempts made to level up different parts of the country, they never really went anywhere. And, and so, you know, and failures of the NHS, I mean, that's chronic, chronic 
underfunding of the National Health Service. Nothing to do with immigration or immigrants. The NHS largely functions because of immigrants. <laughs> and, and so again, you know, you're at the same place that we've been talking about where rather than, you know, but, but it requires a sort of consensus uh, for debate, right? I mean, I've heard it called like the good chap policy of governance, right? Where really democracy requires everyone to be a good actor. And we fail, we failed to be able to identify good versus bad actors and their their underlying objectives. Because we say oftentimes like, well, the other side of the the, the debate or the the other um yeah, the other side of the debate is a really common phrase, but some debates there there isn't an other side. You know, it's, and it, it's, it stems, I mean, look at the mythology around the, the way like the other half live, right? I mean, how we've all would have grown up, oh, how the other half live. You know, no, like there's less than 1% of people living like that, you know? And it happens the same in, look at climate change. You know, why do we see um, understand or acceptance of climate change being at least in part man-made decline over the last 20 years. Well, because when the climate change debate emerged, every broadcaster was attempting to offer balance by putting a climate change skeptic next to a climate change scientist, despite the fact that there was a 98% scientific consensus that climate change was man-made. I read, I was reading one saying, okay, if you wanna actually present this debate accurately, have 98 scientists and two <laughs> skeptics, uh, you know? But because people take signals, Right. If they if you see 98 people like we all are experts in this and we think and the two you're, you're watching at home, you're going to be like, well, I mean, these two people are nuts. And we've seen the same effect from social media. And I use the example of Flat Earth Society. Right. So Flat Earth Society, there's no other side to this debate. The Earth is not flat. It's not flat. And yet, you you know, before social media, if you were sitting at home and you thought, oh, I think the Earth might be flat. You go down the pub, you say to your mates, I think the earth might be flat. And your friends would go, what are you talking about? The earth's not flat. So you'd either go, ooh, I'm gonna hold that view inside and stop sharing it, i.e. it's socially unacceptable. Yeah. Or you change your mind, as we talked about, you know, can people still change their minds? Now you just go on Facebook, you join the Flat Earth Society and you're like, ah, oh, 3 million people just like me, we all know the truth and nobody else does. Yeah. And that's the reciprocal danger and harm of social media is it actually, it doesn't allow for stamping out of, of things that are dangerous to social cohesion and our special existence, mm. right? Not dealing with climate change means we could not have a place to survive anymore. It's existential. And yet where is the acknowledgement that allowing this concept to perpetuate is actually extremely dangerous? Nowhere. Yeah, I mean, there's the, the, like, honestly, for me, I don't understand why they're, when they're having this sort of debate, they don't, like, talk more about, about like, the, the, the damages of pollution. Because, like, for me, that seems mm. like just, like, okay, well, I mean, you, you could say, like, the, the, the earth warming is also um, inarguable. But, um, like, the, for me, the, 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 the pollution is, is, is even more definitive. And you can just go, look, look what it's doing. Look, it's just destroying shit. Like, it's just really, really destroying, like, ecosystems. Yeah, um, yeah overconsumption of, of meat. Like, but instead, what we get is we get presented to us um, benevolent billionaires in the form of I use air quotes because they're, I should say that as well, in case your people aren't watching this, air quote, <laughs> benevolent billionaires get presented to us as heroes who are going to take us to another planet, right? So there's this distraction of constant delivery of we're going to Mars, we're going to colonize Mars. And, and I'm not saying that that's inherently bad or we shouldn't be pursuing those objectives, but it's used to distract from the fact that our one environment that we do have is becoming inhabitable over time. And, and you know, the real thing to, to say to, to, for people to think about is, do you think you're gonna be on one of those early rockets? <laughs> yeah. You know? Mm. And, and again, that's the disparity, the broader disparity in society that will lead to a situation once again, where we're, you know, we're watching the wealth, the wealthy go to another planet while we're left, yeah. you know, with trash piling up around us being like, um, can I buy some oxygen please? Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds extreme, but you know, the climate emergency is no joke. 
No. We're talking 2035, right? At this yeah. point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I like I literally like just before we started this, I was I was doing a, a podcast with um, Rupert Reed, which will be out by the time this is posted. Um, and he's the he, he was a spokesperson for for Extinction Rebellion. So so I'm just fresh yeah. off that that discussion. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, it, and instead we, you know, just another point of just to say about that, because it will tie in is the, the, the tunnelers right in in London right now. There's people tunneling under Euston Square to stop hs2 and some more to try and stop ancient trees and the the narrative is these lawbreakers blah 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 right so there's still this frame of like well they're breaking the law as opposed to they're attempting to save our species mm. and you know when i think about the 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 consequential shift that happened on january 6th in conversations about social media I am wondering what the similar event will be in the climate change movement where you no longer have to win a public relations war. You know, now we know people now go, okay, actually social media can be harmful. So we can now actually finally get to the solutions, but it took an attempted coup in the quote unquote beacon of democracy <laughs> for this to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, it's 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 pretty stunning that it took that for, and then I'm not even sure that that um, they're gonna go about it the right way at this point. Like, uh, I think they're they're the 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 immediate like scapegoating of Parler was was like a great example of the fact that these companies are gonna do absolutely everything possible to not take responsibility for the in the way in which they they influence politics and and society. Mm. Um, why do you think it is um, that, that politicians in the UK have 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 done nothing nothing about it? Because this drives me so insane. I, yeah, well, I mean, I, I think it's excuse me. I think it's 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 well. There's two reasons. The first is um, just taking off your point. In 2020, 2020 was the first year where tech lobbying spending in Brussels and DC exceeded oil and gas. So we've reached the tipping point of who's now the most influential lobbyist, lobbyer, right? And, you know, we're a team of three in the UK leading this push for the, you know, online harms in the context of democracy. Facebook is, you know, one of the wealthiest corporations on earth. So there's the imbalance of, of ability to influence. But the second more sort of underlying factor is is literacy in these areas so it's it's simply that legislators are we're not are not digital natives these are all learned skills every every way in which they understand and and comprehend them is in relation to something from their own life experience so be it a newspaper or a tv broadcast so the the actual impact the ability to assess the impact it's like telling telling someone about television who grew up, you know, who remembers the telegraph, right? Like that's the leap step that we're talking about, the lockstep that we're talking about. So for me, it's just, in, in my experience, it's an absolute lack of literacy and on these topics. Um, and that's actually what my book is focused on is this basic literacy of what is this stuff? Like, what is a cookie? What does it do? Mm. And, and if we don't, it, we cannot assume that legislators are somehow fully equipped experts in these areas. And we, we also do not want them to turn to the tech companies to explain it all to them because the explanation will, of course, in no way involve them. Hmm. No, of course not. I mean, I am a little more cynical aside from just, I, I think the literacy is a serious problem. Uh, I am a, kind of of the belief that they have no desire to legislate for um, a like wild west of of like propaganda that they can pump out that will quite potentially benefit them like the the people who ran the the leave campaign like the the heads of like michael gove boris johnson etc are are sitting at the top of government and they also were very they benefited exceptionally from the amount of money that was poured into the 2019 um campaign that was again like mostly spent on on digital advertising and i think that they see the power of it have no desire to to regulate it and make it a more uh, sort of like transparent and and conducive to like the best form of democracy and and society that we have because they can exploit the chaos and the lack of oversight more than they you know 
they, they stand to benefit too much from having that unregulated area in which they can just post. Well, and that's the consensus, right? I mean, that's the establishment consensus around these types of things. It, it goes right back to power. Even even the Labour Party, right? I mean, it, um, as the two largest parties, not anything that adds more ability for others to compete will always be seen as a threat, mm. which is why it's so hard to move anything that deals with issues of democracy. Because inherently, the party of government is the currently the largest power. So any reforms to democracy will be viewed as a threat to their power. Mm. And which is why independent, you know, having, um, you know, much deeper democratic reform around institutionalized, separate democratic reforms and regular constitutional conventions and citizens, so forth, that have power is, is essential because you have to establish the norm um, I mean, I, you look at look at uh, MPs pay, right? I mean, the, the MP pay um, scandal of the late 2000s led to IPSA, which independently assesses expenditures and salary increases. Now, that means sometimes that, you know, they get a salary increase and everyone's going, well, they shouldn't get a salary increase. We're in a pandemic, but they're not making the decision. It's completely independent of them. Um, but, you, you know, how do you do that? How 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 do you make democracy accountable to itself? Yeah, yeah, well, it's it's a it's a serious problem. Um, but your 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 point about about like we're just witnessing the two parties sort of of, of like fighting each other. Um, I'm willing to exploit uh, these these like massive holes in in the the integrity of our democracy is literally like the topic of my book, the establishment civil war, because that's what it is. And 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 we we're all sitting here. Um, well, Wild. can I just say, yeah. just and that's the visceral rage towards the SMP, right? Right, yeah. because it's upended that baseline establishment politics. Mm. And and you watch, you watch, they just get they get stamped out. Like any any sort of like move towards um, some sort of more more representative democracy uh, or electoral system gets stamped out. It's just not even considered. Like, uh, I think there's now. It's going to be interesting, actually. I've just released a podcast with um, Emma Nags from Make, Make, uh, Make Votes Matter. So they're, they're campaigning to get um, proportional, proportional representation um, as our electoral system. And they are trying to lobby the Labour Party for this year's conference to have a vote on it because they consistently find that like 70% plus of Labour members want proportional representation but the party won't won't go for it because that would mm. that would put an end to the two-party system <laughs> oh absolutely and yeah. if you look at stable look at germany i mean as a terms of a coalition model right i mean that that actually it, you know the, those the, the country benefits greatly from forced compromise but once more i mean we're talking about you know the the hyper polarization and silo of siloing of 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 views as caused by social media, the idea of coalition government would be untenable to people. Mm. I mean, look at the last coalition, which was fairly stable, not too extreme any direction, but somehow like just, you know, horrible for everyone. Mm. And it's, it's, it was, I think it was a fascinating case study in, in how, um, it, why that doesn't really work because it's, it's jockeying for absolute power. The incentive is absolute power. And until you remove that as an incentive, I mean, I don't think, uh, well, New Zealand until this last election hadn't had um, a single party government in, I want to say a generation. Um, whereas, uh, and the same is true in Germany. I mean, it's always a coalition, right? Mm -hmm. So everyone knows, okay, this is what my party would do if they were there by themselves, but I, I understand they're going to have to negotiate to form a government. And then that trickles down to some degree, hopefully in society where people just more broadly think compromise is good and essential and necessary. Mm. Mm. Just like white supremacy and authoritarianism trickled down from Donald Trump's Twitter account. Yeah. Well, um, that seems like a very uh, positive note on which to uh, end things. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, uh, but... Uh, Kyle, thanks a lot. Is there uh, how can people get involved or signed up with with Fairvote UK if they if they want to learn more or, or try and help with your cause? 
Yeah, just go to our website, fairvote.uk, and um, click the button that says join us and um, get our um, email updates. We're running a huge campaign around online, um, uh, playing fair online in the next election starting next month. So it's a good time to get involved because we're going to be demanding of candidates in the absence of regulation um, commitments to uh, you know, not be terrible, basically. And we're working with uh, 10 organizations, including Make Votes Matter on that. So awesome. Um, great. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. No problem. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, it was a pleasure. Buy my book, everyone. <laughs> Buy his book. Yes, exactly. You heard it from Fair Vote UK. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. If you haven't already and you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast and to our mailing list. And don't forget, my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, is now available for pre-order on Amazon. You'll find the link in the description below. Until next time, thanks so much for listening. <laughs>